morning? Okay. Um, a reading from Matthew 16, verses 15 through 27. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. You guys doing all right? Okay. Everyone checked in their tomatoes and fruit at the door, right? Yeah, we're talking about politics for the next four weeks, so that's why I'm, uh, you know, a little averse to the flying tomatoes at my head. So in 1941, C.S. Lewis began publishing a series of fictional letters that would go on to be called the Screwtape Letters. And in these letters, they're, they're quite trippy because they're written from an older demon writing to a younger demon on how to corrupt they call the patient. So someone who had started coming to faith in Jesus, how to corrupt this person to uh, ultimately lead them away from the enemy who is called God. And so it's all, all sorts of trippy as you're reading it. And I encourage you to read it because it, it's really helpful uh, to kind of get a perspective. They're fictional letters, but they're really helpful to uh, help form us in ways in which we may not realize that we are being counterformed towards something wrong. So these letters are written in the midst of World War II, and yet many of them feel like they could have been written yesterday. They, they're still very relevant. They're still very poignant. And in the seventh letter, I, I find it to be something that is quite relevant to us today. Uh, ultimately, what the, the demons are doing is they're trying to corrupt their uh, patient, their person, and they're ultimately trying to get them to see that their faith is a means to an end instead of the end itself. And so I want to read an excerpt from this to kind of help us. So listen to, uh, as Screwtape, the elder demon, writes to Wormwood, the younger demon. And all of you are like, I have no clue what I got into this morning. That's okay. Just bear with me. I promise. 
I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, that is God, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Does that sound like today? Yeah. He goes on to write, Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the state, onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. The attitude with which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as a way to show obedience to the enemy. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. It was written by C.S. Lewis 80 years ago. 80 years ago, C.S. Lewis writes this, and he nails one of the chief dangers of our current age, and that's political idolatry. I firmly believe that the greatest threat the church in America faces today is the elevation of partisan politics to a place of idolatry. And that goes for, for both ends of the spectrum. Lest you think I'm talking one or the other, it's both ends of the spectrum. Professor Stanley Hauerwas has said this. He says, Protestant Christians set out to make America Christian and ended up making Christianity American. The church, us, you and I, us gathered here, us called out ones, us who have devoted our lives to Jesus, we do not exist to make America great again or to build back better. That is not why the church exists. Rather, we exist to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim a different king, King Jesus, the one who is Lord over all, the one who reigns over all. That should be who we are. God forgive us that we've made it about something else. We've gone astray from our primary task. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have gone astray. And we need to take a step back. We need to reflect. We need to repent. And ultimately, we need to refocus. Refocus on what this life is about. It's hard work. It's difficult work. Few are willing to do it. But it's absolutely crucial for us to rightly order our lives based on the gospel of Jesus and nothing else. 
He is our first love. He is our chief and He is the one who we are to worship and adore and live our lives about. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be talking about faith and politics. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. And I'll just get this out of the way. I'm likely to disappoint you. I'm likely to anger all of you in one way or another. I'm likely to make you want to pick up the tomato and throw it at me. And I'm okay with that. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. What I ask is that you weigh what I'm saying based off Scripture. Not based off of your political party. Not based off of your news source. Not based off your favorite internet meme source. Weigh what I'm saying based off of Scripture. Because I think if we'll allow Scripture to do the work, it's going to form us in a way that we're not expecting. I don't think a lot of us have done the hard work of taking a step back and saying, okay, I'm not going to look out there first to tell me what, how I'm supposed to act and what I'm supposed to do. Instead, I'm going to look to Jesus first. I don't think many of us have done that. And so what I'm hoping over the next four weeks is that we'll do that, that we'll look to Jesus. And the best place I know to start is Jesus himself. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm hoping that as we dive in today that we'll catch a glimpse of who Jesus is. That we'll catch a glimpse of what Jesus has come to do in order that we might discover how we're to live, including in our politics. And so before we go any further, let's just take a moment to pray. And we come before you this morning in an act of worship. And your church has gathered together to declare our allegiance to you. To worship you as king of the world and the entire universe. God, we ask for you to move in our hearts and our minds. And if there's anything within us that doesn't line up with your kingdom, that doesn't line up with your gospel, we ask that you would strip it away. Humble us, O Lord. We need you. Help us to rightly order our loves. Help us to cast aside everything that hinders. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As I was trying to figure out where we were going to start in this series, I still wasn't very sure earlier this week. I knew basically what I needed to say, but I wasn't quite sure uh, how we were going to ultimately get there. And uh, that happens a lot of weeks, to be honest with you. And so as I was praying and searching scripture, um, this was a scripture that I was reading just in my own devotions this week, and uh, I felt the Lord highlighting this one as where we needed to begin. And so we're going to be reading in Matthew 16, and I want to start in verses 15 through 17. Jesus says this, But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, my, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus has been asking his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? You know, we've been going around, we've been talking, we've been seeing the, the, the sick healed, we've been doing all of this stuff. Who are people saying that I am? And so the disciples give Jesus some answers of what people are saying, and then Jesus shifts. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is the crucial question. Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he only a spiritual teacher, a spiritual Lord? Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? And Peter comes up and he's full of zeal and he proclaims to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In this moment, Peter rightly declares who Jesus is. Rightly ascribes him worth. Rightly ascribes who Jesus is and what he is to do in the world. He is the Son of the living God. That is, he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. He is the Word made flesh, John 1. He is the one by whom all things were created, Colossians 1 again. He's also the Messiah, the one who is to rule on the throne of David, Luke 1. To establish justice for the nations, Isaiah 42. And cleanse all from sin, Isaiah 53. Peter rightly proclaims who this Jesus is. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in many ways, this is Peter's mountaintop moment. Yes, I did it. I got it right. I told Jesus who he was, and Jesus responds back to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon. This has been revealed to you by my Father. And just think about that for a moment. Like, that would be a great experience, right? Like, Jesus telling you, blessed are you, Simon. You got it right. This was revealed to you by God. You've been doing the right thing. You've been listening. You've been paying attention. You see who I am and what I've come to do. Keep that in your mind, okay? Let's keep going. Jesus goes on to say this in verses 18 through 19. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, Jesus is giving a great response to Peter, and he's telling Peter that, that his messianic confession is the rock on which Jesus will build his church upon. And I, I think right here is when all the disciples are getting excited. Now I guess it's happening. Jesus, the Messiah, he's revealed himself to us. We've said that he is who he is, and he's ready, and he's going to build his church, his called out ones. He's going to, to do this. We're the remnant. We're the ones who got it right. We've clinged to the promises of God. We've chosen to follow him. And other people may not get it, but we got it. We got it right. They're like, Jesus is the Messiah, and we're going to follow him. 
wherever he goes. They're ready to take up arms to see a new day arise because they're waiting for a Messiah king, a victor, victorious king, one who will rise up and restore the kingdom to Israel. They're waiting for that. And they're like, yes, we're part of the Lord's army. But then Jesus subtly introduces a different way. As he says to them, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And that's a very quizzical thing for Jesus to say. And the disciples probably just brush right past it. But what's important for us to know is that Hades is the realm of the dead. For all. The realm of the dead. It's where Jesus would descend to prior to his resurrection. Abraham's bosom, you have Sheol, you have both in Hades. Jesus is letting them know that death itself cannot stop the Messiah. Death itself cannot stop the Messiah's mission to build his church. And this may be something where we're like, okay, I, I don't really get it. I, I, I'm not sure what's happening yet. And Jesus is going to make it a little bit more clear in a moment. What he's about to reveal is that his death is actually what brings about the inauguration of the kingdom. It's going to look hopeless for a moment. Death is going to happen and you're going to think everything is finished and you're like, oh no, I guess we chose poorly. I guess this Messiah, this one that we proclaimed isn't really the Messiah, but Jesus is saying, hold on. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's going to look like it's finished, but it's not. Built on something different. Turning everything upside down for his disciples. And they haven't quite gotten it yet. He's going to make it more clear in a moment. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand what his kingdom is like. He's a little bit different than they expected. Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't quite understand what that means. And Jesus is clarifying that the Messiah must be the prophesied suffering servant. The one who takes on the sins of the world in order to establish his kingdom over all creation. The Messiah must die. And this isn't what the disciples are expecting. The Messiah must suffer, be killed, and raised from the dead. This is radical news to the disciples. Radical news because they weren't expecting this. They were expecting the conquering king, not the lamb to be slain. It's something different than they expected. They didn't want a failure who would die before being enthroned. They wanted the one who would sit on David's throne. And Peter, oh Peter, just had this mountaintop moment. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You got it right. You know who I am. And Peter's like, this doesn't fly with me. Let's keep reading. Verse 22 through 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hey, Jesus, come here. Come here. 
just Jesus. Like, like I just say you were the Messiah, and now you're talking crazy. Jesus, you don't got this right, Jesus. Like, you're supposed to be this, but you're saying all this. And, and me and the other disciples, we've been talking, and we say you're a little crazy. And maybe you need to go take a nap again, Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. Like, just think about that for a moment. That's like any of us coming up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you got it wrong. There's a better way, and I know about it, and you don't. And let me tell you, Jesus. That's what Peter does here. He rebukes him, saying, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter's emboldened. He's like, Jesus has been talking good about me. Jesus needs me. He expects me to do this. And so Peter takes him aside, rebukes Jesus, saying, never, Lord. You're not going to die. I'm not going to let you. Look, Jesus, remember, I have a sword over here. You're going to see me use it in a little while. I'm going to chop the dude's ear off. Not going to happen to you, Jesus. And what does Jesus do to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Like Jesus just said, on this rock, I will build my church. This confession, this messianic confession from Peter, and now you're a stumbling block to me. Like that's a fall from grace. And it took Peter six verses. Like, if you've ever thought you've screwed up your life too much, just think about Peter. Because I don't think you've fallen that poorly that quickly. Blessed are you. Get behind me, Satan. It's a helpful reminder for us. Jesus tells Peter that he's wrong. His focus is wrong and that he's thinking of things from a human perspective instead of from God's perspective. In Peter's mind, he's thinking that Jesus is going to slay the giant of Rome like David did Goliath. That's what's in Peter's mind. Instead, Jesus is like, yes, I am going to slay a giant, but I'm going to slay the giant of sin and death. I'm going to slay your real enemy. And you don't yet understand that, Peter, but you will shortly. See, God's ways are always different from the ways of man. He thinks differently than we do. And we want to do something here. I'm like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Look at what I'm going to do for you. And Jesus is like, no, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to do it this way. Jesus' ways are different from ours. The freedom that Jesus is about to offer isn't freedom from Roman rule, but rather from the rule of sin. He had come to conquer sin, death, and the grave to put an end to the most oppressive force on earth. What they thought was their enemy wasn't their true enemy. And in this dialogue with Peter, Jesus helps us to see how easy it is for us to think we're doing the work of God when in reality we're doing the work of Satan. I'm going to say that again for us because it needs to sink in for us. Jesus helps us to see how easy it is for us to think we're doing the work of God when in reality we're doing the work of God. 
Too often we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, but then do the opposite of what the Messiah will. Exactly what Peter does here. Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. No, Lord, you can't do that. I won't let you do that. I'm standing firm right here. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We can believe in our heart of hearts that what we're doing is for God and his kingdom and be dead wrong. Peter wasn't wrong because he, he didn't believe in what he was saying enough. Peter believed in what he was saying. He said, never, Lord, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let that happen to you. Peter wasn't not zealous enough. In our heart of hearts, we can be convinced that we're doing the right thing. We may even have some scripture backing. Peter had some scriptural understanding for what he was saying, but he was still wrong. The way of Jesus is different from the way of the world. It's different from our ways. His kingdom is an upside-down sort of kingdom that spreads through love instead of force. It spreads through service instead of conquest. It spreads through invitation instead of compulsion. His way is altogether different. His kingdom is altogether different. And our vision of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what he requires of us must be rooted in who Jesus is as revealed in Scripture and not who we want him to be. Not in a limited understanding of who he is by picking this and this instead of getting it all together. We must look to the totality of Scripture. Sadly, when it comes to politics, we fail to put Jesus first. You're like, no, 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 Kevin, you don't, you don't understand. I'm putting Jesus first, and that's why I'm acting the way that I'm acting. We haven't put the way of Jesus first. We've put the way of the world, the way of Satan first. We're following Jesus in ways that he never intended us to follow him. We can say that we're following him. We can say that we're doing his will. But if that isn't matched to Scripture, if it isn't matched to how Jesus told us to live, then we're doing life incorrectly. We've listened to politicians and political talking heads more than the Messiah who has come to make all things new. I just want to ask you this question. It's on my notes, but how much news are you consuming per day? I'm not going to have you answer. Zero. Amen. I get a little weekly digest like three times a week. Felicia Masonheimer is a teacher, a Bible teacher, um, and she has this great little phrase that says, I can't consume more news than I'm willing to pray over. And like, that's just so great. Like, if you get nothing else, I get that from, from the sermon today. But we're often bombarding ourselves more and more and more, and we're listening to people who just are, are fueling outrage. Like, they're not helping us. They're just getting us to this point of anger and rage. We're like, can you believe what they did? And then they're over here, can you believe what they did? Like, that's what we're consuming over and over and over again. And of course it comes out. 
what comes in always goes out. Why are you angry? Why are you full of rage? It's because look at what you're consuming, friends. You're constantly listening to the, the political talking heads who are just fueling rage. I think you're going to miss the way of Jesus. We've tried to build God's kingdom in a way that he hasn't intended. In fact, it's incongruent with who God is. God is love. That's who he is. And yet we're over here like, how can you believe that? Come on, man. What? Where do we get it in our heads that that is the way to win the world to Jesus? Where did we get it in our heads that that's the way to win the fight or to win the war, whatever you want to call it? How did we get that in our heads? As a church, we must repent. One of our, our kids this morning went up to Miss Emily and was like, hey, can you remind me what the word repent is? And I was out there and I was like, okay, I want you to start walking this way and I want you to run as fast as you can that way. Repent means to change directions. It's not to say, sorry, Lord, I did that, and then to keep walking this way. To say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I've done things that aren't in line with who you are, and now I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to lay myself down, and I'm going to go after you. We need to rightly live in light of eternity. Not in light of the next election. Not in light of the election after that. We need to live in light of eternity. That is who we are as Christians. We're not pulled and pushed by what's going on around us. We're pulled and pushed by the risen Messiah. The one who is seated on the throne. The one who rules over the entire world. What matters most is that we're submitted to the person and way of Jesus. That's the most important thing about our political engagement. You want to change the world? You want to see things change in America? Me too. I want to see people worship God. I want to see people live rightly. I want to see people do moral things. I want people to stop doing this nonsense. Amen, I do, I do, I do. But I know how that changes is only by living a life devoted to Jesus. Not by yelling at them to get their act together, but instead to show them and teach them the way of Jesus. To teach them about the one who forgave me when I was at my worst. Who forgave me when I was an enemy of God. To teach them about Him. And this is counterintuitive to us. It is. It's difficult for us. But it's the only valid way for the Christian. This isn't one of those things where we can agree to disagree on. Jesus has called us to a certain way of life. And what is most important is that we submit to him and that we live according to how he has told us to live. That we live in light of the gospel, in light of the mercy of God. That we've been saved by his glorious grace. And therefore, we're living our lives poured out to him in thought, word, and deed. 
And this isn't just what I'm telling you. Let's listen to what Jesus goes on to say. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be a Christian, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. As we read these things in context, in light of Peter's proclamation of the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in light of Jesus rebuking Peter for trying to do things differently than the way of God, we see this as something that's prescriptive for us in all areas of life. Not something where we can just be like, yeah, I'm going to give up a little bit for Jesus, but instead to lay everything down for Jesus, including our politics. And this is so hard. It's so ingrained in our minds. It's so difficult for us to do this, but we have to lay it down. We have to surrender. We have to deny our desires to bring about the kingdom of God in a way that Jesus hasn't endorsed and instead follow his way. You know, Jesus poignantly asks the question of this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good will it be to convince everyone to vote the way you want them to vote and forfeit your soul? What good will it be to make America have Christian laws and yet not follow Jesus and not love Jesus and say, Jesus doesn't love me because his followers don't love me? What good is it, friends? It's of zero worth. Zero worth. I hope it's weighty. I hope it's difficult for us. I hope that some of you are angry at the things that I'm saying. Because if you are, I'm touching the right nerve. Jesus has called us to something different. We can live our life on our terms. Or we can live our life on his terms. Those are the two options before us. Not to have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of us. Anything short of full surrender, anything short of full surrender is idolatry. It's to make God in our image instead of the other way around. He is God, we are not. We don't get to choose what we want to choose about Jesus. When we do this, it's for us to, to say to Jesus, I know you're God and you have a plan, but my way is better. Or better yet, Jesus, you don't know what's going on, and so therefore we have to do it this way. And this just shows, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. 
Because we only understand what's going on around us in our time period. But we have to remember when the church was birthed was under oppressive Roman rule. It was way more backwards, way more screwed up than we are. They're like, no, that can't be. It was. And Jesus gives all of this to the church. And the church followed him, followed his ways. Friends, we must repent. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our crosses. We must follow Jesus in thought, in word, in deed. God is the one who builds his kingdom, not us. God is the one who builds his kingdom, not us. And guess what? Nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. Not the other political party, not the election, not any of that. Nothing can stop God. He will build his kingdom. Our job is to yield and trust and obey in the waiting. And that's hard work. We're to seek first the kingdom of God according to the way of God. To not be people like Peter who proclaim, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then to say, never, Lord. Because we've done that for far too long. We've called him Messiah. We've called him Savior. We've called ourselves Christians while saying to Jesus, never, Lord. Jesus told us that we would be persecuted, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to be peacemakers, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to forgive, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to care for the least of these, and we say, never, Lord. Jesus told us to live out the gospel and bear fruit, and we say, never, Lord. We must repent. We must change directions. Let us not be people who are Christians in name only. Let us be people who have been fully marked by the way of Jesus. People who deny themselves, who ascribe their whole lives to Jesus. And this includes our political lives. It includes how we live that out. Jesus must not only influence what we think, but also what we do. How we live, how we treat those who think of things differently than us. It must influence how we live. If our means aren't Christ-honoring, the end doesn't matter. If our means aren't Christ-honoring, the end doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we get where we want to go if we have not honored Christ along the way. If we bring about moral laws through immoral means, we may have won our country, but we will have lost our fellow citizens. We'll have lost a generation because we haven't lived in the way of Jesus. What matters most is that we faithfully live as those who have been transformed by Christ and help others to see the surpassing worth of following him. That is the most important thing about our lives. It is. And we must see that. And if you don't see that, pray. And if you still don't see it, pray some more. And then read the Word some more. And then look at the cross and look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that you did this and I know that you made everything about salvation and the renewal of creation, but this matters more. Never, Lord. We need something different. 
Everything we do must be Christ-centered. There's no option for a Christian to lay aside the way of Jesus and to still be under his lordship. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord to say that is to say that I will live fully under your reign. There's no option for us to proclaim Jesus as Lord and live a different way. It's the foundation we need for faithful political engagement. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk more about the specifics of how we should act, how we should engage, how we're to submit and subvert. But before we get there, I want to just leave us today with an excerpt. This is from the Epistle to Diognetus, written in the second century A.D., and it's talking about how Christians lived. And this is what I, I want to leave for us this morning. It says, Although the Christians live in Greek and non-Greek cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow local customs and dress and diet and the rest of daily life, they also exhibit the remarkable and admittedly peculiar nature of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but still as foreigners. They participate in citizens as everything, but endure everything as strangers. Every foreign land is their home country, and every home country is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not throw away their offspring. They share their food table, but not their marriage bed. They happen to be in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend time on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the laws that have been laid down, yet in their personal lives they surmount the law. They love everyone, but are persecuted by everyone. This is how the early Christians lived, as faithful followers of Jesus, submitted to walking in the way of Jesus. Jesus changes everything about us, including our politics. May we be known as people who aren't part of this political party or that political party, but may we be known as people who have been transformed by Jesus, people who look like him and not the world. May we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and actually walk under his Messiahship, actually walk under who he is. May we be faithful citizens of the city of God in the midst of the city of man. Let's go over our three key takeaways before we pray. Number one, idols are deadly. Our first takeaway we often chase after idols without ever realizing they're idols. And that's how deadly idols are. Whenever we demote Jesus to a secondary position or see him as a, a means to an end, if we allow something else to take primary place, we've committed idolatry. Our second takeaway is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And his messiahship has dramatic implications that reverberate throughout the entire cosmos. Because he is who he is, that changes everything. Messiah isn't just a, a title, it's who Jesus is at his core. And that means we have to live from that. Number three, we must surrender everything to him. We can't proclaim that Jesus is the messiah while also saying never, Lord, to the way of Jesus. 
We must deny ourselves and surrender fully to the way of Jesus. Please stand as we pray together. Jesus, as we gather here today, we proclaim that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. As we came into this gathering today, we knew we were going to worship you. We knew that we were going to sing songs to ascribe you worth. We knew that we were going to sit under your word. We knew that we were going to come to the table. Maybe we didn't know we were going to be confronted by sin in our life. Help us, Lord. Yeah, we need you. The world is broken. It's clear to see that. You saw it and you came and you gave your life in order to make it new. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you are the crucified king. That the cross doesn't mean defeat, that it means victory. God, help us to live in light of eternity, in light of your kingdom. Help us to live as citizens of the city of God among the city of man. We lay ourselves down, Lord. We surrender. We know that only you can change the world. And that you've been doing that since the beginning. Remind us of who Jesus is. Remind us of what he's come to do. Remind us of what he will do. Help us to live faithfully in light of all that. In Christ's name.